This podcast contains conversations about trauma and other challenging subjects and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from drawntoastory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences of positive change with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. And it's a place to openly listen, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. Now, when I started to think about preparing for this podcast, what struck me was that potentially we can all be refugees for a future that has yet to happen. Who knows what is ahead for any of us? As you might have guessed, this conversation is going to be about refugees. I grew up in Australia being proud of our history of helping refugees. In more recent times, it actually hasn't been so good. But I grew up with the stories of what we used to call Vietnamese boat people. And I was proud that our country had helped them. The first boat of refugees landed in Darwin Harbour in late April 1976, and it was the beginning of an exodus of people as they fled for their lives. A journey that could be dangerous, overcrowded on unseaworthy boats, dangerous seas and pirate attacks meant that, sadly and unfortunately, many people perished at sea. And since then, we've seen this story played out many times around the world. Here in England, it's been a very hot topic with refugees regularly arriving by boat from Calais. We've seen thousands of people walking across Europe. We've watched the Rohingya refugees escaping violence, Afghans fleeing the return of the Taliban. We see stories all the time, see stories about the Syrian refugee camp in North Jordan, and we're seeing it again with Ukrainian refugees fleeing from the Russian invasion. But, and this is important, we also see a lot of conflicting information which can be dangerous. And as Care for Calais states, the refugee crisis is the greatest humanitarian issue of our generation. Not just that crisis, but all of them. And how we respond will define us for years to come. And what I've discovered is that people often base their opinions on false information and that impacts their thoughts and behaviours about refugees. And we need to have these hard conversations that talk about real reality. And so it is with great pleasure that I'm joined today by Michael Fahler. Now, Michael Fahler has been a refugee activist since 1982. That's 40 years. So I reckon he knows a thing or two about how all of this stuff happens and how it works. And Michael works primarily, please correct me if I'm wrong, with refugees from Afghanistan and Syria. So welcome to Drawn to a Deeper Story, Michael, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So the term refugee activist feels like a very simple term for something that I imagine is anything but simple. Can you tell me more about what you actually do and what it entails? Well, generally... I'm contacted, sometimes it's by an agency, could be another refugee agency, it could be a human rights agency, it could be somebody working in a government agency, or by a refugee themselves, or a friend of a refugee, somebody who's tracked me down. And usually when I'm contacted, the person who I'm contacted about is in 
trouble. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they're in trouble in their own country. Their lives are threatened and we have to find a solution to help save them. Mm. Usually it starts with me talking to that person on the phone, on WhatsApp usually, and Mm -hmm. having video chats with them and pretty much trying to get an understanding of what their threat level is and also confirming that they are who they are and vetting them, making sure that they truly, you know, in need. And then we start to look for a solution. Generally, that solution begins with trying to help them find a secure, safe place to be in their country of origin. So generally, it starts that way. And so we're start examining, well, where can you go where you're going to be safe, where nobody's going to hurt you, nobody's going to um, attack you, nobody's going to try to kill you. Mm. And uh, so we look for some sort of safe house or some sort of place for them to go, usually within their country, most of the time in a different town, a different Mm. city where they can be anonymous. And they pretty much hide until we can work on the next step which is getting them out of their country to a third country, mm-hmm. you know, and you're not a refugee until you leave your country. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, mm. you're, 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 when you're still within your country, you're not considered a refugee, but once you, once you have fled for whatever reason, you know, that you fled, then you become a refugee. So mm. The next step then is to get them to a third country. And, you know, and most of the refugees that I've worked with, uh, as far as LGBTQ refugees are concerned, Mm -hmm. uh, most of the ones that I've worked with have been from Iraq, from Libya, from Tunisia, from Syria, and Pakistan, and Afghanistan. So those are the countries that I've worked with the most. I've had a few who have been from Africa. But uh, most of the ones that I've worked with have been from more of the Middle Eastern countries. Yeah. Why are they in danger? Is it because they're LGBTQ plus and it's their sexuality or their gender that is it in opposition to the country's values, shall we say? Well, throughout the world, in many, many countries, uh, being LGBTQ is against the law. And so in some countries like Iran and Uganda and places like that, you can be persecuted, even killed uh, yeah. because you're gay. But most of the ones that I deal with are not usually under threat by their country. They're under threat oftentimes by their families. Mm-hmm. They get outed to uh, members of their family and to their family, it's a huge shame and embarrassment to have a family member who's gay and the tribe or the community that they live in, they get it as a disease and they look at it that that person sometimes needs to be killed. So oftentimes uh, in different parts of the world, you have things such as honor killings where families or communities will actually try to kill their their child for for being gay. Mm. Or you have militias. You know, I had kids who were captured by ISIS at one point in time. Mm. And and, uh, and my kids are still alive, but but I've known people who have have died at the hands of of militias like ISIS and, you know, militias in in Libya and places like that. So it's uh, difficult. LGBTQ refugees are 
a very unique refugee group because they're vulnerable uh, by the closest people mm. in their lives. They're, they have to be afraid not only of their governments and of the militias and whatever, but they have to be afraid of their own friends, family, and neighbors. Yeah, they're closest people. Yeah, the closest people in their lives. And so I imagine then they're exceptionally isolated because you can't hide away. Like they know all your contacts and your places and it must be quite difficult to disappear. It is. It is very difficult for them to disappear. And also, you know, when we have them in hiding, like as right now, we have not only some LGBTQ people, but some gender female gender activists, uh, mm-hmm. uh, gender equality activists in Afghanistan who we have in hiding right now. It's a very, yeah. very isolating experience because they can't tell their family. They try not no. to talk to their families. They try not to talk to their friends. They don't want anybody to know where they're hiding because mm-hmm. somebody could be captured. One of their friends could be captured by the Taliban and tortured and give up a hiding place. Yeah. You can't trust anybody really it's your your life at risk you, you, you can't you can't trust because even people who you do trust they are vulnerable as well yeah. and uh it's it's difficult well we had one couple about a month ago who uh, you know i got a whatsapp <laughs> we were just sitting down to watch tv and i got a whatsapp and said michael please help us the taliban are at, at our door they're coming to our door Gosh. Wow. and uh so I was like, okay, boys, you know, write my phone number down someplace else, eliminate, you know, WhatsApp off your phone, wipe your mm-hmm. phones clean, you know, hide your passports, hide, hide your identification, don't answer the door. And the reason I was concerned about that is I knew that one of their friends had been captured just two days before by the Taliban. Mm-hmm. So I'm going, oh, I was worried that they might torture that person and, and their hiding place might be given up. You know, and as it turned out, I mean, I didn't know for hours and hours and hours, you know, I had a hard time sleep. I could hardly sleep that night until yeah. it was at four o'clock in the morning. They got WhatsApp on their phone and they called me and they let me know that they were okay. But mm-hmm. I didn't know if, that, if I was ever going to hear from them again, you know. That was something I wanted to ask you is how do you, because you said to me once, I think you said, how many people you have that you're currently helping? It's 175, I think you said. Is that I have 173 on lists that I'm trying to get to Canada or out. That who are, mm. But then I have 35, 37 who are in hiding in Afghanistan. And then I have a few others who are in yeah. Syria, Libya, yeah. <laughs> you know, Iraq. Because I was going to say, like, how do you cope? emotionally with that that's a lot of stuff that you have to process as well and and not knowing and being on the end of a phone is is incredibly difficult is it i mean tell me what that is like well you know it uh it is it's uh it's incredibly difficult and uh because i live in the world of atrocities you know if you look at my Mm. whatsapp pictures you know i've got pictures of kids with you know, who, who have been tortured, bandaged, mm. they've been beaten up, got pictures of, you know, kids with gunshot wounds and whatever, who have all mm. contacted Oof. me and asked me for help. And, uh, but I've been doing it for a long time and I've had many successes. I've had far more successes than I have had failures. Mm. So it's the successes that keep me going. 
However, there are times when, you know, like that evening that I told you about, uh, uh, I'm very, very disturbed and very, very upset mm. and, uh, and a nervous wreck. <laughs> you know? and, uh, yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, yesterday, there was somebody had told somebody about me who was a psychiatrist and, uh, and he was very interested in my work and he wanted to come visit me. Mm. And uh, mm. so he came by yesterday morning just to find out about it. I was really excited because I'm always looking for, because I have so many kids with PTSD issues that I can find anybody who has that type of experience to just do video chats with them and, and call them on occasion mm. on WhatsApp. Uh, you know, to me, it's just, it's, it's huge. Uh, so I was yeah, very excited absolutely. to meet this man <laughs> and he came and he was like, you know, well, what about your PTSD? And then, and he started asking me some stuff and <laughs> I don't know why I it was maybe because he was a psychiatrist. It was, it was like, I started getting teary eyed when I, when I, when I, when I talked to him yesterday, I, I don't usually get teary eyed, but I started getting really teary eyed. Yeah. Maybe there was just the way he did it, but, but for the most part, I do fine because I'm I've been doing this for a long time and it's difficult mm. and you know and there's times when really have to talk these kids through these difficult situations you know they're mm. having tremendous PTSD and they're depressed and they're upset or mm. they're frightened and I have to give them hope you know yeah keep your stuff together to to give them hope yeah you know it's like uh in the beginning of the Afghan conflict, I had two brothers. They were both Hazara and uh, one was gay and they were living in a, a hiding in this sort of a abandoned kitchen with no running water or, or bathroom or anything like that in a back of Kabul. And, you know, first we had to figure out a way to get the money because they were starving. And uh, you know, so first I got the money through a journalist and then we found this pastor in India who evangelical pastor who had people on the ground in Afghanistan. I started sending him money. Then we found an Afghan businessman who lived in Southern California, mm. uh, who uh, had still had some businesses in Afghanistan. So we'd, I'd send him the money and then, you know, we'd have the kids just go stand in uh, a corner of a market somewhere and more in, dressed like Taliban clothes and yeah. they'd have a little ribbon on their lapel and then somebody would just come up and pass them the money. And this is how we were getting money to people. And, uh, and one day I was at our house in Washington and we were walking on the beach with a group of friends and I get a call from these two boys and they're just sobbing so hard. And they're telling me that the Taliban are coming door to door and that they don't want to be burned alive. They don't want to have their heads chopped off. Mm -hmm. They're just going to go up to the top of the building and jump. Yeah. So they're sobbing and they're sobbing. So I said, I just kept let it out, let it out. I mm -hmm. let them cry for a while and, you know, and talked about the fear that they had and, and whatever. And, you know, the part of me that the tough guy who's been through this before <laughs> kicks in and goes, okay, boys, you know, I've been through this before. It's yeah. not over yet. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. Then I started talking to them and trying to find out, you know, 
if there were any other places that they could go hide. And they identified uh, in the building next door, there was a basement and there was a closet that they could go hide in the basement. I said, okay, I want you to go hide there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, uh, uh, and they did. And as it turned out, the Taliban never came to their building after all. Oh, uh, like living uh, on a knife edge permanently. <laughs> that, yeah. Just but, uh, but, you know, I'm so used to talking people through that stuff that, I, that I'm good at talking myself out of it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I also think it's like yeah. when you look at trained, I don't know, police or military or whoever, like there's a zone. I, it, like I always think of it as there's like a zone you go into, like you just said, that you you know what needs to happen and what there's a, an order of like you've just got to get to safety. Then everything else can be dealt with. You can't panic. Yeah. You have to stay clear headed. You may not know what the solution is but you just stay clear-headed and you just look for an opportunity to survive and yeah. that's and, and that's what we do yeah so. have there been any circumstances where people have contacted you and they've gone into hiding and they've managed to stay in their own country forever and haven't needed to move on to be a refugee does that happen or is that just not likely Yes, it, it's it's happened or it's happened uh, sometimes where, for instance, uh, being a refugee, there's different dangers for males versus females, you know, and uh, so, you know, I've been in contact sometimes by females who are in countries that they can't go anywhere without being accompanied by a male. Yeah. And uh, they're, can you get me out? Can you help me? And, and uh, they're probably going to be married off uh, mm. to some old man. And uh, so there's times when I have, we have to weigh. Mm. If I was able to send them with a group of refugees would be one thing, or if I had a safe pathway for them, but oftentimes the pathways aren't safe. Mm. And the trade-off oftentimes with female refugees Mm-hmm. That they they they're sold into into, into slavery into yeah. uh, uh, into, into prostitution and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so that creates a difficult dilemma when you weigh the risk versus this. It's like okay, mm-hmm. maybe for right now you just need to stay where you're at yeah. until we can work out another situation. Yeah, and so that happens uh, sometimes. I've I've also had refugees that have gone back. To their country. What kind of reasons? Why would someone go back? Usually it's because it's usually a mother and the mother's yeah. very, very sick. All right. And, mm. uh, uh, and so they've, they've, they've gone back. And then uh, if I've already have them being processed as a refugee, mm. uh, for instance, if they're being processed to go to Canada and we already have an application or even an accepted application, mm. If they go back to their country for any reason, they're not looked upon as a refugee anymore. They're going, well, a person couldn't be that in so much dangerous if they they went back. And so that's incredibly difficult choice, though, isn't it? For people, family members dying potentially or or it's like you risk your own life. I mean, that's not a decision, really. That's not a choice, is it? Emotion takes over. My gosh, I had Mm. one. Yeah, she was accepted we were just waiting for his his uh date his mm. or i own to give the date for him to go to vancouver everything was accepted and his mother had kidney stones oh. but his mother was in terrible terrible pain and he was so 
concerned about the kidney stones. I'm like, kidney, your mother's not going to die with kidney no, stones. Absolutely. Survive, but he heard the pain in her voice and it was oh, so, no. drove him so, so difficult mm. and in, in such difficulty and so much caring that emotionally he went back to he Iraq. And well, then he, now he, he, he lost his op- opportunity. Yeah. How does that work then when someone is seeking asylum? I mean, you're, you're kind of doing a triage when you, someone gets put in touch with you, you're assessing their needs. Is it then like take a number and you're in the queue or is it just you kind of just deal with whatever happens or you're working out who's in more need than someone else? How does your, how does your process work? And also how, how do you actually n- work out if someone is, a genuine, is in a genuine need for asylum? Well, first, I spent a lot of time with them on video chat. Mm-hmm. And then I spent a lot of time interviewing them and getting their story. And yeah. I learned, learn about their families. I learned about who's in their family, what those people's positions are in their family. You know, are they anti-gay? Are they, you know, are they part of a militia? What, what's the family situation? Mm-hmm. What's the religious situation? Uh, that they're in. And I get them to share with me their entire story. And, and, you know, and I ask lots of questions to see if there's inconsistencies. Mm. And, uh, you know, and and sometimes there has been, there's, I've had uh, only, I've, well, I don't know how many refugees I've helped at this point in time, but it's a lot. Mm. There's only really been, I think, one person of all of those ones who probably wasn't gay yeah, and, uh, uh, and, but was using the thinking that I could get them out if they said yeah. they were gay. <laughs> Everybody else I think is for the most part checked out. So. Yeah. After this long, you start to get a sixth sense of who's genuine and who's not, or, or what their issues are. Like, is there a, oh, I don't want to say like a pattern because that just minimizes people's experiences, but are there distinct things that you know that, are genuine that you almost don't need to interview them you just know that you need to help the person oh yeah 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 no mm. there's 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 real life. And, and then of course there's a lot of people who you know uh are also uh referred to me by very reputable people people who had been high up in the u.s state department who were, who mm-hmm. were friends of theirs and, and uh uh people from you know other well-known refugee activists who asked for help yeah 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 and i imagine all of this costs a lot of money getting people with and with sponsorships and all that kind of stuff how do you fund this work what how does that happen well most of it i have funded myself um, wow and uh that's giving me goosebumps michael <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's astonishing but at this point in time it was different when you know i would have 20 ongoing cases at a time but mm. uh, now i have so many go- ongoing at a time mm. that uh, it's really it, it, it's so occasionally i get some uh mm. people who donate money but mm. uh, but most of it I've, I've 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 funded myself well that i almost don't know what to say to that it's just it's like you're an angel doing this incredible work helping people because it's it's absolutely changing people's lives i mean it's it's saving people it's it's astonishing it's astonishing that we have an opportunity to save these people and very rewarding once we do it just nothing makes me 
happier, you know, when we finally, yeah. you know, talk about job satisfaction, get, 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 get somebody somewhere and then yeah. we watch them. And I spend a lot of time with them generally uh, prepping them for a mm. new life because generally to get somebody, okay, well, if, okay, if we're going to get somebody to the U.S., uh, the process would usually take two to three years mm. uh, because first we had to get them approval through the UNHCR. Yep. And then after UNHCR approval, then you had to get approval for the U.S. The UNHCR would take usually a couple of years to get mm. them through the UNHCR process. With Canada, I don't have to deal with the UNHCR. I don't, have, I don't need the UNHCR piece, but, uh, mm. but the process generally takes... Uh, a minimum a year and a half mm-hmm. to two years. So, so I spend a lot of time with each, each yeah. case, each person, you know, mm. really get to know them and become friendly with them. And yeah. And, and try to prepare them for yeah. you know, life. You know, they, they need to know that they're not going to the milk, land of milk and honey, you know, I mean, <laughs> they're gonna get there and they're going to have to work and it's going to be yeah. difficult. You yeah. know, once they it's a different culture. And, uh, it's a huge settle, settling in process, I, yeah. I imagine. Like, How long does your support last once someone gets to a country? Do you have a definitive time or is it kind of a, a vagueness of when you know they're, they're able to stand on their own two feet? Or Well, so what happens for Canada process, most of the people that I work with, we, we go through a station like Rainbow Refugee out of Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they require that we find about four or five sponsors for them. So mm-hmm. I work pretty hard at finding them sponsors yeah. uh, that all are in the same city. And then that sponsorship group needs to raise money, usually needs to raise about 15,000 US per person mm-hmm. that will be given to them. It, it'll go into a sort of a fund for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once they arrive, then it's given to them a little bit each month. Yeah. And, uh, Access as they as they need. And then after that, after they're there a year, then they they're they're on their own. On so their own. now my encouragement with people is don't even touch the fund. If yeah. you don't touch the fund, <laughs> we can give it to somebody else. We can give yeah. it to another refugee. Your new life mm. isn't really going to begin until you have mm. a job. You know, you have to get there. You know, I try to get everybody to, I want them to work, you know, mm. as soon as they get there. And because without a work, you know, in the, in the West, you know, mm. if you, if you don't have a job, it's hard to rent an apartment. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's, it's like the, the whole system. Hard like, to do anything. So your new life doesn't really begin. It begins yeah. with a job. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I encourage everybody to get there and work hard. Yeah. And work, uh, you know. With, Make the most of the opportunity and yeah, run with it. So how do you choose where people go? Do they ask you or because I know that there's each country has set quotas for a year. Like, is there some countries like with Canada where you don't have to do the UNHCR process that are more favoured for particular reasons? Or like, how do you select which countries? How does that happen? Well, it uh, sometimes it depends. Like sometimes they might have family in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a European country or something like that. Uh, it also depends on the process. You know, there's like, you know, one, like one of our Syrian guys we got out of Syria during the heart of the Syrian civil war. We got him a student visa, you know, mm-hmm. to go to, to the to the EU. And, uh, and so then. You know, he got there and then we could apply for asylum. Yeah. It depends on how we get them 
in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for me, most of the people uh, that have gotten to the U.S. and and into Canada up until the Trump administration, mm-hmm. I was getting most of the people to the U.S. and then with the Trump administration and the um, the difficulty that happened, especially for Middle Eastern people trying yeah. to be resettled uh, as refugees, um, accepted in, in, into the U.S. I just kind of aborted that and, yeah. and went. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a what's the point? Canada. Really? However, I have to say that we did get uh, we did have a few that did make it to well, the U.S. Uh, yeah. Surprised me, but we didn't get you in. Fantastic. Um, I know that you're mostly kind of Middle East and Africa, but as someone who's been doing this work for 40 years, I wanted to ask you a bit about Ukraine and how does that, what does that mean in Europe for the existing Afghan, Syrian, Af- African refugees who are waiting to get into Europe or to, to be settled? What impact does something like Ukraine have where it's just, a sudden, I mean, I think it was uh, UNHCR said just this week it was four million people had had left. How does that impact on a greater scale the work that you do? It's horrible what's mm. happening in Ukraine and 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 what's happening to those people in Ukraine and uh, uh, and the flight that's going on uh, mm. to, to to leave the country and and it has strained an already very, very strained refugee system. Mm. For instance, in the US, quite honestly, by the State Department, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, a lot of the State Department, a lot of the jobs in the State Department were somewhat gutted during the Trump administration. Many, mm. people, many people left because they disagreed with what they were doing. And then many people, I think, were fired and, and, uh, and lots of positions were un- unfilled. Yeah. And then we had COVID mm. and, uh, and many people left mm. as of COVID. And this isn't only in the State Department. This is in IRCC. This is in refugee yeah. organizations all over the world. Yeah. Uh, they were very, very adversely affected by COVID. And then suddenly we have a major labor shortage everywhere in the world where there's, yeah. where it's hard to get people to come back to work. You know, people mm. just want to work from home. And uh, uh, and they don't want to have a lot of this. It's very common everywhere now. Yeah, and yeah. So massive structural framework kind of changes process systems. So there is a very very weak structure uh, for processing refugees, which was has been causing a tremendous amount of delays just from those issues. Mm. And then we've had uh, two major uh, refugee issues and. The last since since August, we've had major refugee issue with the Afghanis, yeah, and now we have a major refugee issue with the Ukraine. So, mm. so you know, the system for everybody mm. is just overburdened, and uh, I am not as involved in uh, in. I have friends who are, but I'm not mm. as involved in 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 the Ukrainian refugee uh, situation. However, uh, I'm trying to work many, many people through the system. Mm. And I thought I had a lot of it worked out. (laughs) Uh, And then Ukraine happened. And suddenly I'm not hearing anything back from Mm. 
the major organizations anymore and mm. kids who I can't tell you how hard I've worked to get, you know, so many kids, you know, expedited visas to get them out of Afghanistan. And, or this, this week we had one kid who, uh, you know, who went over the border illegally mm. to, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through so much to get these people, you know, into a different country. Yeah. yeah. Some of them now they're, I, and I thought that I had them on lists where they were going to be moved forward, but now I'm not hearing anything. So I don't mm. know what's happening. So I'm, that's one of the, one of my stresses this yeah. week is, uh, is, okay, you have to have your dancing shoes on. And, yeah. uh, and maybe what I thought was going to be happening the pathway that I had was going to have, it may not happen because no. of the worldwide refugee crisis. So I need to figure out other ways for them to survive where they're at. Yeah. Until they're uh, able to. And possibly find other pathways forward. So yeah, it's it, it's it, the, the, the system is extremely strained. And yeah. of course, Ukraine is, has trained in. And of course, everybody's attention now is on Ukrainians, you know, it was, it was before on the Afghanis, but yeah. now the Afghanis are, and nobody hears about them anymore. Well, you know? this is the thing. We've talked a lot about this with in my community, with particularly with a, a few colleagues about like everyone's suddenly focused on Ukraine and Ukraine is is awful but these things are happening also around the world all the time and I know I've got I know a lot of people who have found stuff the way that the media has been reporting around Ukraine really traumatizing because it's triggering their own things from childhood or their own kind of family stories around around war or around things but nobody's allowed the space for them to have their stories acknowledged like it's that from a PTSD point of view it's um it's a really difficult emotional space and I was thinking about what you've just been talking about is very much that the front line of just trying to get people safe and I keep thinking about the impact now for for Europe like we can house in in the UK there's people have been putting their names forward to house Ukrainians and I think it was six months that they had to agree to which is still a short time that to do this but I just keep thinking about how do you integrate this many people long-term and the impact for societies, our society, Ukraine, everywhere, how you deal with that, that level of impact in terms of mental health services, rebuilding Ukraine, helping people return if they want to, the emotional support, like it's just enormous. I don't even know how governments or how people even start to, to look at that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I'm sure that Putin um, saw the impact of, Syrian refugees mm. on, uh, uh, on on the EU and and uh, and the absorption of that and how difficult how that actually pushed some countries to, more toward autocracy mm. and uh, I'm just assuming that's part of his calculation as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know, but I think you're probably quite right. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I just want you to clarify it really is. In this country, there is a, a chunk of people who talk about refugees being illegal immigrants. And there's always the argument out there that says an asylum is a legal right, but to claim it, you have to be in the country. The problem is there's no legal way to get to that country. If you haven't got a passport, you haven't got a visa, you have to try and get there by illegal means. Can you just comment on that and kind of clarify what all that language is and, and what that all means? Or tell me if I've said it all completely wrong. <laughs> Okay, so there's well, first off, there's a there's a difference between claiming asylum. Asylum means that uh, 
you've made it to a country. Yeah. And sometimes you've made it there, you know, you've either made it there legally or illegally. You may have Mm -hmm. made it to a country, a work visa, or you may have made it Mm -hmm. to a country on a education visa. Yeah. But you're a persecuted minority uh, in your home country. Mm -hmm. uh, And that person minority is recognized in the mm-hmm. country that you have your work visa or your uh, uh, or your education visa and so then you go and you apply for asylum and you get asylum that way uh, so that's one way mm-hmm. or you might get to that country illegally in, in, mm. in some bizarre wild way shape or form mm. and you but once you're there, you apply for asylum. Uh, that is the exception. Most people who do get to uh, the U.S. or Canada or, or U.K. or EU, uh, they come in in a, I, I should say, places like Greece and Sicily and whatever that got a lot of people. They, they did come in mm-hmm. you know, on boats and whatever sort of illegally. Uh, but then there's... People who most of the time, whether they get there that way or not, there's certainly a long process that they have Mm. to go through, whether it's an asylum process or in most cases with the work that I do, Mm -hmm. we get them to a third country. And that third country is usually Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan, uh, possibly Egypt uh, or Pakistan. And then from there, we go through the long process of mm. applying for them to, as a refugee, mm. uh, to go to a country to be resettled in. Yeah, it's fascinating for me when, I mean, I don't have the level of knowledge that, that you do, but so I've got a lot of things coming into my mind, but it, it fascinates me that how long the process is, but also all the moments where it can also all go wrong, like depending mm-hmm. on things that are completely out of your control, and how hard that must be to maintain a steady level of support for people when there are so many changing things around. Is that one of the hardest things of your work? Or You know, there's one of the things that I have to decide when I'm being a refugee and going through that process is very, very difficult. Mm. You have a very, very difficult two or three years ahead of you to... Yeah to go through that process. And not everybody has the temperament to make it through that process, you know? So that's part of, you know, the evaluation is, is, is this person even a candidate to be Mm. a refugee? Are they, are they able to cope with all of that? And, uh, uh, and so that's part of, you know, what the decision Mm. process is. I have one young man right now in a Middle Eastern country who, um, Actually, he was referred to me by PFLAG and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I've evaluated him and, and he just is not a candidate. I mean, he just, he just, he just wouldn't be able to handle that process. And, and so what we're looking at for him is, you know, just how he can survive better where he's at. Where he's at. Yeah. And the whole idea of being LGBTQIA person in hiding trying to be safe is that you are literally in hiding how do you how does that person 
survive i mean you talked about being able to get some food to people or some money to people but i imagine that's quite difficult those kind of conditions must be incredibly difficult to help people you know certainly it depends like you know there's there's lgbtq people who outwardly they appear more mainstream yeah uh and so they are able to blend in a little bit better and i encourage everybody to Mm. blend in when they're in danger as well as they can. You know, I, sometimes I tell them, Hey, if you have to get that prayer rug out (laughs) and get on your hands and knees and pray, you know, so people will, you know, let's, let's do that for right now. This is, this is, this is is what we need to do until we get you out. Yeah. And, uh, and, but then there's those who just can't hide and, uh, and that's, uh, those are certainly the most vulnerable, Mm. uh, you know, I have uh, several, and there's, uh, I helped organize an evac flight out of Afghanistan mm-hmm. when the Taliban was already under control of the airport. And I got some very, very, very effeminate group of kids mm. out of Afghanistan. And they're now in a refugee facility in, uh, in, a, in a, one of the Gulf nations. These kids, they can't hide it. They're... Mm in a refugee facility with 5,000 other of their countrymen. Mm. And whenever they walk out of the room, because mm. effeminate and they just can't hide. Yeah. It. No, it's just who they are. Yeah. You know, they, uh, uh, they're harassed. They're threatened. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've got to keep them, you know, if this has been going on for months and months and months, mm. and I've got to keep them, moving forward yeah. and uh, Keep spirits so they, up as well. they, they, they go to their room you know they mm. go get their food they bring it back to the room they, they hardly leave their rooms because they are you know frightened by the persecution that they get yeah. from from their fellow countrymen that mm. that's one of the things that uh with lgbtq people that's very very unique uh for them as a refugee population is that I do everything I can to keep them out of a refugee camp or refugee mm. facility because of the persecution that they experience there. So, and, and sometimes get beat up. I've had kids beaten up. Yeah. Uh, I've had kids who they, they've tried to kill, you know, mm. it's. Uh, Cause you're still within the context of what, are, what's the national value of that country. Yes. And, and I keep thinking about here in, like the privilege of being in the UK and people really struggling with lockdown when we had all the COVID stuff, but you could still go for a walk and you could still, but you weren't harassed. You were locked up. Like I can't, the thought of being contained and having to be contained for the safety of a life. It's inexplicable to even think about what that is. Like you say, when you can't hide who you are and how dangerous that, that is. Yeah, I. COVID brought a a, a, a whole different. <laughs> it's kind of like you, you do this work, and then okay, this is this is what we have to deal with now. And uh, and with COVID, it uh, for me it was like okay, nobody's moving. They're not resettling mm. anybody. Nobody's able to travel and whatever. And so uh, suddenly, I was in a situation where it was like okay, everybody's got to stay where they're at, and we have to find long term hiding places yeah. for people long-term safety and, yeah. uh, uh, and which and then there were some countries which uh, were literally putting bounties on refugees heads you know uh, uh, so nobody mm. would nobody would rent to them and, and yeah. uh, that, that that put a whole different spin on things now that that's a little bit more relaxed 
Mm. Now we're dealing, of course, with the you know mm. influx of Ukrainian refugees, and and uh, so I always tell everybody. I always tell my kids. I have one thing I say to them. I say, you know, we if you're a refugee, we all have one thing in common. Mm-hmm. We wait. We wait. We wait. <laughs> we wait. We hope. We wait. And you need to keep your dancing shoes on and look for any possible opportunity. Yeah. And you have to grab that opportunity when it comes up. And that's, yeah. and that's, and that's pretty much what it is. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and hope can be a very powerful thing. And if, if you can keep hope, then you can kind of keep going, can't you? Yes. Yes. And so, so when they're, when they're in those situations, you know, I try to, uh, one of the things that I try to get them to focus on is, you know, okay, some of them, it's time to learn English. Yeah. Uh, and some of them, it's 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 time to figure out what you want to do with your life once you get mm. to a new place. I have them, I try to get them to start to set goals. But how do they want, after they get to, you know, wherever yeah. their new home is going to be, what's their six-month goal? What's their one-year goal? What's their five-year goal? And uh, what do they want in their life? Yeah. yeah. It's like a sense of purpose in absolute temporary state. They're trying to actually yeah plan for things and and give them hope and move forward and yeah and, and actually it's it's been really amazing because the, everybody's got phones and my god there's phone apps out there <laughs> that they can they can take personality tests they can take their Meyer Briggs personality inventory <laughs> or they can they can take a vocational interest test and learn yeah. a little bit about what kind of Fantastic. profession they may want to do and uh, or meditation it's like okay you got to meditate you got to you, you and my message is is you know you're locked up you know they're they may be locked up almost in a jail facility and they're depressed and they're upset and it's and so my message to them is hey if you can find happiness here you'll find happiness your whole life you just need to we need to help you find happiness now. Yeah, <laughs> that's stunning, Michael. That's absolutely wonderful. That's just perfect. Absolutely wonderful. You keep talking about these kids. What kind of age bracket are we talking without kind of uh, suggesting how old you might be? <laughs> well, most of them are usually in their 20s and mm. 30s. Uh, however, we have some who are older and mm-hmm. we have when we've had uh, we've had a few kids that were younger than that. Uh, uh as well so yeah yeah and before we go can you there's two things i want to ask you could you just tell us a little more about the the women that you're helping that you're talking about the gender equality women from afghanistan where they're at and what's happening so it's such a tough situation for for these brave women um who um some of them became judges some of them were very, very professional women. Some of them were in government. And uh, so we have uh, about 80 of these uh, gender equality activists in one facility yeah. uh, in the Middle East. And I'm looking for a pathway forward for yeah. them. Um, we have, uh, gosh, I've got probably, well, I've gotten several to Pakistan. And then I've got several in hiding right now as we're trying to get them visas and, 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 uh, and get them to Pakistan. Unfortunately, in the last couple of weeks, the Taliban has, uh, they have cut school 
Yeah, I saw I read that the other day. For for girls and and now they're trying to make it so women can't do anything on their own, travel on their own. So I'm quite concerned about them, but we have some extraordinarily brave uh, women. We had uh, one of our activists, um, gosh, I mean, I can't tell you, I, I don't even want to tell you because I, I want to give her identity away, but she no. was in, she participated in some very, very well-known demonstrations against the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And uh, they attacked her family home. And a- anyway, it's a, it, there's a lot that uh, the, the bravery of some of these women mm. is just astounding. Yeah, and remarkable. of course, the ones who we also have in the uh, refugee facilities, they are also uh, looked down upon by many of their fellow countrymen because mm. they, are, they, are, they are such liberated uh, people. You know what? Uh, I have a friend who uh, just came back from Afghanistan last week, and he gave me a call. He said I was just in Kabul for ten days, and and uh, you know he was telling me that uh, there seems to be a division in the Taliban right now. There's mm. Taliban who feel that they should be they're more pra- pragmatic, and they feel like they should be working more closely with the West. Mm. And, not going back to the extreme religiosity. And then there's the religious fanatics. And uh, he felt that probably the religious fanatics were the ones who were winning there. And uh, shame. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so. Yeah, it's difficult. Because of all of this and everything you've, you've been talking about, if people who are listening to this want to get involved or help with donations are there organizations and charities that you'd recommend that people can donate to or to help support the work that you do or because i can put all of this in the show notes for people yeah so personally i've never started my own organization mm-hmm. <laughs> and i, and, and I haven't had I time haven't, to <laughs> i haven't done that because it was like okay if i i've been on the boards of different organizations so i know what goes on if I, okay if i do this there won't be time to help people yeah, yeah. and uh but i work very very closely with scm medical missions yeah okay uh and uh uh and they have a donation page they have one for afghan refugees Mm -hmm. they have one for it's called the new life fund which is for gay refugees Mm -hmm. and uh so anybody who wants to make a contribution there uh i would be very very grateful because we got a lot of people we're trying to help and i will tell you at 100%, it, it, it's tax deductible if they yep. need a tax deduction, <laughs> and 100% makes it to the refugee. Yeah, There's, we don't we don't take out we don't take out any kind of administrative fees for that. Mm-hmm. It goes goes directly to the refugee, and we have a lot of people in need, so that would be very very much appreciated. And then, if there is anybody who does want to help, the type of help that uh, I need. Uh, is people who might have some skills in just talking to people, mm-hmm. helping them have a brighter, people who are yeah. very isolated and hiding, you know. Some socialization. Mm-hmm. Just, just some socializing. And, 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 and also, you know, kind of what's happened for me is suddenly I used to be able to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> just have like maybe 20, 20 yeah. refugees at one time, you know, yeah. that was kind of like, 
how I've operated for most of these years when I had 20 people in migration, not people who were resettled, but in migration. And, but now I have so many, it's hard for me to keep up with them. So people yeah. will sometimes now, now people are referring people to me and I'm like, okay, I will help, mm-hmm. but I need to have you stay involved. Yeah. I need to have you uh, form a support group around this person. Yeah. I will talk to this person, evaluate them. I will give you, I will direct you guys to show you what the pathway is that we can move that person forward, but I can't possibly handle them all. So absolutely anybody anybody who wants to help with that kind of work, I would emotional support. And, and, and also I imagine it's things like, like you were talking about with helping them get ready for wherever they're going to live, just start to think about references and and what kind of jobs they want. And just, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but kind of like, normalize their lives to to help them start to think about the future not what they're sitting in as awful as that is is mm-hmm. it's kind of i don't know it feels like normalizing what the future is going to be and trying to actually help that emotional shift as well all of that mm. and and also if people are in regular communication with with with, with some of these people who need human contact mm. Uh, you know, then they can call me if, if, if there's a problem for me, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to know, okay, if, if there's a problem, then let me know so I can jump in and yeah. help, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, uh, so, and is that in, in English or in Arabic or what's the usual? Oh, so it depends on where they're at, but mm-hmm. some, a lot of people speak English, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of the Afghanis, uh, speak English, but many of them don't. And most of them will speak Farsi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certainly we have a lot of people who still have people from, from Syria and uh, even who who speak Arabic. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, Fantastic. And so if people are interested, should I get them to come through me and I can then forward on details? Yeah. Yeah. If you, you just pass them on to me and I'll be yeah. happy. To. Yeah. Fantastic. All righty. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah. I know yeah. you're an incredibly busy man. It's taken us some time to actually manage to have this time together. So I really appreciate your time. And I'm so grateful for you to, to be talking about these difficult stories and the reality of people's lives. And I think I've always had this sense that these people are having to live this. The least I can do is listen and be part of trying to understand and to try and be part of making a difference. So I wanted to thank you personally for everything that you do and to wish you well and all of your work and hope that all these people that you're working with will soon safely be settled somewhere that's safe and that they can live live here that they can live their lives hopefully hopefully, yes yes thank you so much yeah Yeah. no thank you uh and to my listeners thanks again for listening to drawn to a deeper story if you'd like to find extra resources about this episode or you're interested in helping out michael and you want to know how you can get involved more uh do look me up on my website drawntostory.com or join my mailing list and we can we can go from there and I'd like to leave you with a quote from Alyssa Johnston that says refugees are you and I with different circumstances <laughs>